And I think a lot of parallels to the recent global pandemic with COVID, you really have to understand where the disease is if you're going to try and implement any interventions to prevent it moving forward. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Humanity is tantalizingly close to killing off the last guinea worm. This is a waterborne parasite that, when ingested by a human, grows and grows until it painfully exits the body through a lesion on the skin. There's no treatment for it, there's no cure for it, but it can be prevented. And if prevented everywhere, guinea worm disease will be eradicated. We are now on the cusp of that moment. In 2022, there were just 13 confirmed human cases of guinea worm disease around the world. This is down from three and a half million cases in the early 1980s. At the center of the global campaign to eradicate guinea worm disease is the Carter Center. And joining me today from Mali is Adam Joseph Weiss, director of the Guinea Worm Eradication Program at the Carter Center. We kick off discussing how guinea worm disease is transmitted before discussing how and why efforts towards eradication have been so successful thus far and what it will take to get to zero cases worldwide. Now here is my conversation with Adam Joseph Weiss of the Carter Center. Guinea worm disease is a waterborne parasite that people get from drinking stagnant surface water sources. Generally speaking, it only affects humans. However, over the last number of years, it has also affected domestic dogs and cats. And this is a parasite that once you ingest it, it is very unique in that it is stealth-like and you don't know that you have it. So it doesn't cause anemia or parasitemia, whereby you have some kind of sign or symptom. Until that worm fully develops, which takes about 10 to 14 months, at which point either some kind of blister or swelling will occur. And that is when you first might tell that you have this particular parasite. 
And then when the worm emerges from your body, it can take several weeks to even more than a month to manually extract it. And it's when that worm emerges from the body, either of a human or a domestic dog or cat, that then if it's exposed to the same types of stagnant surface water sources, can reinfect those water sources, whereby, again, putting people at risk for picking up the disease. And there's no medicine or vaccine or cure for this. And it's my understanding that if this worm emerges, the only real treatment option is the painful extraction of the worm, typically from an extremity. That's right. We are fighting an eradication program with at least one hand tied behind our back compared to those other diseases that have been targeted for eradication. Having no vaccine, no cure, no treatment really makes it much more difficult and really focuses all of our efforts on behavior change interventions, whereby what are people doing, what are even animals doing that are cared for domestically so as to prevent transmission. The most devastating part of the disease is that it debilitates people and the domestic animals as well. And so they're not able to move around. And for humans, not being able to go to school, not being able to tend to their farms and take care of their families. For domestic animals, the disease does not seem to incapacitate them for very long. Typically, worms can emerge in the matter of a few days, but still can be very painful to the animal as well. And I do want to discuss with you details about behavior change interventions that have proven so successful over the years in so sharply reducing the number of guinea worm disease cases around the world. But before we get there, could you just sort of set that context? Where did we used to be with guinea worm and where are we today, mid-February 2023? The amazing thing about this campaign, which started in 1980 at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, as they and many technical experts were contemplating what can and should be targeted next after the successful eradication of smallpox. And they had been hearing about this disease, but not a lot was well documented or known about its geographic distribution or the number of people. But with the help of some modeling and point-in-time surveillance activities, the annual caseload in the early 1980s was three and a half million people per year. And this was part of what really inspired former U.S. President Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind to really become champions, to help raise resources, to help provide technical support to the various countries that were affected by the disease. And so they themselves, when they traveled to endemic countries, saw entire villages incapacitated by guinea worm. And that really moved them to take action. And so fast forward from a lot of interventions, a lot of support through bilateral commitments from foreign governments around the world, from NGOs and family foundations to support the global campaign, we've driven infections down from that three and a half million per year to just 13 human cases last year. And where are those 13 cases located today? So having come from three and a half million human infections annually in the early 1980s, at the end of 2022, there were 13 human cases. 
those 13 cases were distributed six cases in Chad, five cases in South Sudan, one case in Ethiopia, and one case in the Central African Republic. So a fairly distinct geographical location, but within those countries, we're talking about kind of rural enclaves, right? Not cities, but rather this is a disease typically of the rural poor in that part of the world. That's correct. We often say at this stage of the campaign that the disease is found really beyond the end of the road in this kind of last mile journey. But these are generally small communities, very remote and rural, often with no to little infrastructure, whether that be roads and schools and health facilities. Oftentimes they are marginalized within their own countries for various reasons. And so, again, they're oftentimes very under-resourced in many different ways, and health and safe water being two paramount ones that really make them vulnerable to a disease like guinea worm. You mentioned that we went from 3.5 million guinea worm disease cases in the 1980s to just 13 as of 2022. How have those numbers decreased so sharply? What have been the key interventions that have been so successful thus far? So the kind of key foundation to the program has always been the establishment of a community-based surveillance system. And what that means is really providing technical training and support to volunteers in each of the communities that historically had the disease and or including the communities nearby that might be at risk Because you can imagine if one village is infected with guinea worm disease, the neighboring communities that might be visiting that area for markets or social activities can equally be exposed to infected water sources. And so really making sure that you know where the disease is, is paramount. And I think a lot of parallels to the recent global pandemic with COVID you really have to understand where the disease is if you're going to try and implement any interventions to prevent it moving forward. And so establishing those surveillance networks and structures, making sure that information about people with the disease can be reported, and then local infrastructure, as well as support from the Carter Center can be deployed if it's not already in existence. And what goes into that surveillance system is more than just identifying the disease. The same volunteers are trained in participatory health education methods using very simple flip charts and pictures to lead community discussions about the transmission of the disease and the life cycle so that they can help pinpoint ways and strategies that the community themselves can really take ownership and action to stop the disease from occurring. Another very important tool to the campaign has been the availability of very simple mesh cloth filters. In the communities that have been affected by the disease, most households will have some kind of clay pot or container to store water. And so making sure that they have a very simple sieve that they can use, that when they pour water through it, will remove the intermediary host, which is a small little copepod that exists in all stagnant water all over the world, but is what enables guinea worm to develop into the infection, into an infectious stage. So really a simple water filter does the trick. Absolutely. 
if every water interaction that you have in terms of consuming water has gone through a filtration process, again, through a very simple filter, you can prevent guinea worm transmission. And as you mentioned, it all goes down to education and behavior change. It's not like you can, you know, use a medicine to stop the transmission. You need to have community involvement to stop the transition. And you know, behavior change is always a much more difficult thing than simply taking a medicine or a pill or a vaccine. Yeah, I often say that we human beings are very difficult, just like wearing masks in COVID or making sure you have your vaccinations, you know, eating healthy, exercising. All of those things require behavior modification, if you will, or behavior change. And in the context where guinea worm has existed historically, that issue has been confronted with a lot of local culture and belief. And the stance of the program is not about changing people's culture, but helping them understand the ramifications of their behavior and then enabling them to make a decision to address it if that's what they're willing to do. But that cuts across both religious beliefs as well as cultural beliefs. In some communities where I worked and lived for many years, people thought guinea worm was in the blood. And so you're telling the community and engaging them in discussion about filtering their water. And they're saying, I don't believe you because every time I see guinea worm, it stays within the same family, which is not surprising because it's the same family that's going to drink water from the same water sources. And so trying to help people really understand how those dynamics work without saying you're wrong in your belief system or structure, but rather helping them understand the science and the biology behind disease transmission and etiology. So in terms of other interventions, and even along the same line as filters, there is a small pipe filter that we provide to communities so that those that are moving long distances, whether they're nomadic populations or semi-nomadic, or uh, men and small boys that are going hunting for extended periods of time to make it easier for them to filter water when they're away from the house. And those are donated by a partner, Vestergaard Fransden. And so that's a very simple tool that was actually designed thanks to local populations that used to use reeds to drink water from small water sources. And they decided to take the cloth filter and tie it onto the bottom of the reed. And so the guinea worm program took that and adapted it into a plastic filter that had a wire mesh at the bottom of it so that it was more durable and would last longer. And so in addition to those interventions, there's another key cornerstone intervention that the program is able to apply. And that's the treatment of water sources with an abate temophos. It's a larvicide that helps to reduce the population of copepods, the intermediary host that I mentioned earlier. And so that chemical can be safely treated and applied to water sources to, again, prevent onward transmission. It doesn't eliminate all of the copepods, so it doesn't have a negative or adverse environmental effect, but at least minimizes the adult copepods that are the driver of transmission when a worm is exposed to that water source and releases larvae. So is getting from 13 cases a year to zero cases simply a matter of stopping all chains of transmission 
through the various interventions you just described? Absolutely. Eradication is quintessentially the most difficult thing to achieve because you have to get everything right everywhere all the time. So all of the interventions, uh, what really helps having multiple interventions is that you might not have perfection with one of them, but the other interventions can help complement that. But if we get any of them perfect, or if all of them a little bit sub-perfect, uh, that would be able to interrupt the life cycle. So then what will it take for full eradication? How will you know if you are successful? I mean, you mentioned that it takes 10 to 14 months for a worm to kind of incubate inside a human body. Does that mean that you need to go like two full years or thereabouts with zero cases in order to formally declare an end to guinea worm everywhere? When the program was first established, understanding the, the life cycle and knowing that you have that 10 to 14 month development period, the leadership decided that it would be required to go at least three years after your last infection. And that would be for multiple reasons, because at the end of the day, you have to prove a negative. You have to prove the absence of a disease. And so making sure that you have the robust surveillance structures, making sure that you have good documentation about what has and has not happened in the past, and then allowing international certification teams to visit the formerly endemic areas and to do assessments and surveys to establish a cash reward, which further incentivizes people to come forward if they have the disease. That three-year period is really to enable that process to be undertaken. Our primary goal is to stop transmission as soon as possible. And what I often discuss with our, our country partners and teams is that we can't do anything to prevent the worms that are already going to emerge over this next year. So what's important is not so much looking back and saying we had 13 cases. It's more about looking forward and saying, where were those cases? Where are our highest areas of risk? And then anytime there's a sign or symptom, acting as if it's a case, and then applying every intervention where those cases are that occur this next year. And your work this year is what's going to affect and influence the subsequent year. So do you have the financial, political resources to achieve eradication at this point? Is it a matter of just implementing policies or are there constraints that you're working around that might prevent a sort of full throttle push towards total eradication? At this moment, the greatest challenge which really lies beyond our control directly is local and border area insecurity in some of the remaining endemic countries. That's not to say that there aren't other challenges. Of course, we could always benefit from more resources and greater political will, but those are things that tend to ebb and flow a little bit, and we're able to do things about them. And we have great political will at this moment, I was just in Chad a few days ago and met with their minister of health, who's very excited about the progress their program is making. He's committed to going out to some of the endemic villages, 
which really shows leadership at that national level that then inspires their regional, provincial, district level health officials, as well as community members to really push in this very difficult final phase of eradication. And so political will is something that you always have to invest in, and it's not necessarily financial. It's more of building relationships, just like through the volunteer structure and the various staff that support the program. There are more than 2,500 staff working on guinea worm, nearly 10,000 village volunteers. And so really focusing on building the relationships, building trust can really help overcome those challenges when they occur. As we all know, government leadership also comes and goes. And so what we're doing is really investing in health system strengthening at the grassroots level. So you're currently in a country that has had a few different governments over the last few years in Mali, as you said, governments kind of come and go. What are you doing in Mali, a country, as you noted earlier, does not have a reported guinea worm disease case over the last year? So Mali has not reported a lot of human infections over the past few years, and and certainly huge congratulations to the leadership here for not having any human reports last year. But they did have animal infections, 39 domestic dogs and two domestic cats. And these are in an area of central Mali, Sagu and Mopti regions in particular, where there is a lot of local insecurity some related to external forces, but some also internal. And so this has really helped the Carter Center think about ways that we can provide even more meaningful support and in the way of bridging peace through health. And so we, we have engaged with the government here and other partners to work on building resilience within the communities, within the volunteer structures, while also helping to deliver health packages, namely guinea worm surveillance and treatment for the disease when it does occur, but being able to deploy all of the interventions we've talked about, while at the same time leveraging other health partners that want to be able to deliver support and assistance alongside the government who aren't able to because of the high level of insecurity. And so creating opportunities of peace where they can then invest in those communities really helps to motivate communities, not only for guinea worm, but for so many diseases that impact them alongside trying to rebuild and strengthen their own health structure. So using health interventions as an entry point for broader peace building initiatives, how does one combat guinea worm disease in dogs and cats, if what you're talking about is behavior change. And if dogs and cats are such a significant potential, I don't know, reservoir or vector, I don't know what the term of art is, for guinea worm disease, how does that complicate ending transmission? It has been a game changer in a way, but what we like to say is it's not a game stopper or a game ender because dogs follow humans. Whether you're going to market or you're going hunting or fishing, the dogs tend to go with people. And so what people are doing does influence what dogs are doing. So building a surveillance structure, just like we do for humans, same thing, applying 
more of a One Health concept, which is a framework for a more holistic approach to health issues. And so applying that to the guinea worm context, making sure that we understand you know, how many dogs are in a community, what's the health status of those dogs, teaching people how to interact with those dogs to detect infections. Because it's not as simple as asking someone, do you have a burning sensation or a blister or do you have a worm emerging from your body? Those are generally easier than asking a dog the same questions. So essentially people and the volunteers and the staff have to palpate or comb through the dog to observe any potential signs or symptoms of the disease. But we also have in working in tandem and really kind of co-designing activities, developed other interventions. One of the most important interventions is called proactive tethering. And this was actually born out of uh, a one-man village in Ethiopia. The chief of the village asked us a question. He said, why would you kind of tether or prevent the dog from moving when a, a worm is emerging? Why not tether it before the worm comes out? And so over the past few years, we've been scaling up an intervention whereby people keep their dogs tethered for extended periods of time so that the dogs are not able to either contaminate water sources if they are in fact infected or to pick up the infection in the environment. And so this also requires behavior change because we're working in communities where they don't have the same relationship with animals that they might in the United States or in Western Europe where dogs are treated like human beings. And so helping them understand the relationship of disease between their dogs and themselves can be a barrier to executing that particular intervention. Our other interventions also work in the sense of if you're giving water to a dog, if you're filtering it, again, you'll prevent the potential transmission, as well as the abate temophos that we can apply to water bodies that can still continue to be effective against transmission, both to dogs and to humans. So I guess in the coming year or two, is the prime indicator that you'll be looking towards that will tell you whether or not you are succeeding towards eradication? Is that simply the number of guinea worm cases detected each year? So in 2022, it was 13. Will you know you are succeeding if that number is lower than 13 in the coming year? My view is the program has already succeeded. Of course, we want to get to zero, and that's the hardest part. But we track many different indicators. Of course, our primary focus is on stopping transmission to humans. So we do track that number very closely. We also track the numbers of animal infections very closely as we want to see a decline in all of them. And over the past few years, we've seen more than a 70% reduction in infections overall. And that shows progress. But getting to zero takes more than just, you know, kind of incremental progress. And so we're looking at how well all of our interventions are working and at the same time investing in other tools that could help us accelerate eradication. So if we had a diagnostic tool that we could take either a saliva sample or a blood spot from a human or an animal and say, this host was infected with this disease and we now know it's going to emerge over the next number of months, that would really help us to better target 
our interventions and be even more economically efficient. There's a couple other serologic assays, diagnostic tools that we're working on with a number of different research universities and private partnerships and foundations to help develop. Not that those are direct indicators, but once we have those tools available, that's going to be something that we'll also be tracking very closely to help accelerate progress. Adam, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.